Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Gary Mormino, recipient of the 2015 Lifetime Achievement Award for Writing from the Florida Humanities Council. About two million GIs were here. Anywhere from a day to a year more of settling, you had 200 military installations, and seemingly everyone pledged they would return someday. We'll discuss the history of sport fishing in the Sunshine State. At its largest point, there were thousands of species coming from all over the world, and they were all uh, stuffed, if you will, at the, at the Ward uh, company store. Uh, but Ward spent a few winters here in Florida, again chasing after that, uh, that same tarpon species. And we'll talk about early racing in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. is a retired professor of history from the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, where he directed the Florida Studies program. Dr. Mormino is co-editor of the Florida History and Culture series for the University Press of Florida. He's probably best known as the author of the book Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, The Social History of Modern Florida. Most recently, Gary Mormino is a contributor to an updated and revised version of The History of Florida edited by Michael Gannon, which has been a landmark book since it was first published in 1996. There was, I think, always a feeling, if you talk to uh, historians of Florida, many people always thought the 1996 volume was a little conservative, that it was uh, top-heavy with periods of Spanish history, uh, some of the essays, I think, were relatively weak. The, the essay on the Gilded Age really didn't incorporate a lot of the new details. So uh, a revision was, was uh, needed, and I think they've done a splendid job adding. Michael Gannon has added a chapter on uh, environmental history. I'm not sure anyone could have done that in 1993, I mean, uh, when, when we first conceived of this idea. And I should add the, the chapter that Ray Mole and I did on a social history of modern Florida, only was inserted at the last minute. We thought we're kind of missing the the biggest story of all Florida since World War II, particularly looking at it. So, so uh, uh, 
they've done a nice job. Uh, the the press is, is always University Press of Florida has done a splendid job, and Michael only Michael Gannon could have probably brought this off. I mean, bringing such disparate scholars together. Gary Mormino's award-winning books include Immigrants on the Hill and The Immigrant World of Ybor City, but his best-known work is his 2005 book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida. I asked Dr. Mormino when modern Florida begins. That is a good question. Uh, You'll get a lot of different answers. Some would argue the day Ponce stepped ashore uh, changed everything. Others, I think the more conventional Traditional answers would be maybe the 1880s when Florida's transportation, communication empire gel. I would argue the 1920s when Florida becomes Florida, all of those values we associate with Florida, speed over the top, uh, jazz age. Uh, or others would argue World War II or the, the end of World War II. So there's really not an answer. Uh, in my book, I kind of defined it as, um, as, as the, the, the new Florida dream emerges at the end of World War II. During World War II, hundreds of thousands of soldiers trained in Florida, and many brought their families to live in the Sunshine State after the war. Gary Mormino looks at this period in both his book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, and in an essay in the book, The History of Florida. First, I think we need some perspective. Where, where exactly did Florida stand in 1940? It was the smallest state in the American South, slightly fewer than 2 million inhabitants. Arkansas and South Carolina had more inhabitants than Florida in 1940. Uh, today, we're going on 20 million. Perhaps today, no one's going to quite know the day, but sometime in the next month or so, Florida will supplant New York as the third largest state. And it's in so many ways, World War II is the linchpin between this older Florida, sparsely settled, inaccessible to most Americans, unknown to most Americans, and this hustling, hurly-burly of a state of 20 million people today. Would, would Florida still be an important place without World War II? Certainly. It, it, in many ways, it intensified those five years. In fact, I was thinking how fascinating it is. Civil War is five-year period, basically, 1861, 1865. Begin the transformation of Florida. You can you can overplay this hand, by the way. I, I caution that it's easy to say everything changed by 1945. Essentially, Florida had the same economy. It was a it was a wobbly three-legged stool of tourism, agriculture, and extractive industries to begin the war and pretty much it. We didn't have a great uh, aerospace industry like California. Uh, Cape Canaveral came later almost by accident, but it wasn't because of rocket research in Brevard County. It, the, the, a lot of things are. But the war, the, the greatest consequence of the war was exposure. About two million GIs were here anywhere from a day to a year more of settling. You had 200 military installations, and seemingly everyone pledged they would return someday. And, and essentially they did, as, 
as transplants, as tourists, as uh, retirees. In the post-World War II 1950s, the population of Florida nearly doubled from 2.7 million to almost 5 million. It can be argued, as Gary Mormino does in Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, that this post-1945 era is when we begin to see the Florida that we recognize today. Mormino explains how this intense period of population growth affected the state. Well, in a word, uh, uh, prosperity. I mean, that, that's the great legacy of World War II, one of the great legacies. Uh, the war, I mean, you think of, uh, I've got, I spent a great deal of time on this new book I'm finishing on World War II, but VJ, August 14, 1945, is, is a fascinating day to observe Floridians and Americans in celebration. It's collectively, spontaneously, the happiest day in Florida history. The interesting question, just to think about, what's the happiest day? Well, first of all, you had to have mass communications and all this. But if you think of, here's one way to look at it. The stars were in alignment for Florida and America in the fall of 1945. Almost all of our boys are coming home. Uh, Our cities weren't bombed. Americans have money in their pocket. In fact, the standard of living improves on the home front during the war. Uh, ask someone who's studying Japan in World War II, the home front, or Britain in World War II. Uh, and we've got in America, everyone seemingly wanting a, a new car, a new house, and a vacation in Florida. And, and that prosperity will generate really 60 years of almost unprecedented Growth. Gary Mormino and Raymond Mall have the last word in the newly updated edition of the History of Florida, essentially bringing the reader up to the present. Mormino says that his chapter on World War II and the one he wrote with Raymond Mall have been revised for this new edition. The big change was in the uh, the essay with Ray Mall. First of all, we changed the title. The new title is Boom, Bust, and Uncertainty, A Social History of Modern Florida. And the big change there, there's probably four or five pages on the recession. And uh, it's, it's, I want to, I want to write a book in a few years on Florida since 2000, incorporating, and every day I collect clippings on this, trying to figure out how has the last six or seven years affected us. I mean, you need a new lexicon. Uh, How many Floridians had heard the terms underwater mortgage, zombie homes, uh, uh, flipping? uh, I mean, it's just an extraordinary leveling of Florida. Uh, Foreclosure boat tours of Cape Coral. Uh, I gave a... uh, (laughs) I bet I've had a dozen national journalists in my office the last five years and they all want to know where I should send them to understand this. And I always say, Cape Coral. And uh, I was interviewed by uh, George Packard of uh, New Yorker. And he asked, I need a metaphor for Florida. And I said, well, you think about it. Every day, a thousand newcomers arrive every day in Florida. They buy sod. They, they pay taxes. They buy newspapers. What's going to happen when a 1,000 people stop coming every day? And we found out. And I said, in some ways, Florida is a giant Ponzi scheme. We're fine as long as people keep filling up the pot. And, of course, he titled his article, The Great Ponzi Scheme. And uh, I, got, I got calls from Chambers of Commerce saying, thanks. <laughs> thanks for boosting Florida. <laughs>
Gary Mormino is one of the best-known historians in the state, particularly for studying modern Florida. The Ponzi scheme metaphor he just mentioned, while negative, is a compliment to Florida compared to much of the commentary in the popular new book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, by investigative journalist T.D. Allman. Gary Mormino is not a fan of Allman's book. He is an extraordinary journalist and, and organizes one of the greatest book tours I have, I have ever witnessed, uh, what I would do for his agent. But the, the book is, is just an injustice, I think, to, to scholarship. First of all, he, he, and he doesn't pretend that he's conducted any original research, and he, he wants to shout out that I'm the first ever to have done this. So he makes a great deal that uh, Florida historians have inculcated these myths about Ponce and the Fountain of Youth. I don't know a historian in the last hundred years who's propagated the Fountain of Youth. Uh, So uh, I find the really shoddy scholarship. I find uh, he's an egomaniac, so I guess... I don't like the book. (laughs) Gary Mormino was part of a gathering in St. Augustine that included many luminaries of Florida history, including Michael Gannon, Eugene Lyon, Paul Hoffman, and Kathy Deegan, who came together in recognition of the new edition of The History of Florida. Gary Mormino celebrates Florida's past, but is looking to the future. This may be the last gathering. Uh, What's the line, Uh, the old guard dies but never surrenders? We may, we may never see Michael Gannon and Eugene Lyons and uh, this cast uh, all assembled together again. I mean, since the 1996 book, we've lost contributors to that volume. Sam Proctor, Charlie Arnotti, Bill Coker, George Pozzetta. I mean, these were giants. So uh, that's the wonderful thing about Florida history. As someone who recently retired, but I hope I'm very active, is that uh, you can always be replaced. No one is ir- In fact, f- part of the, the great tradition of Florida is someone revising your work. Gary Mormino is author of the book Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida, and a contributor to the newly revised and updated History of Florida, edited by Michael Gannon. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society and receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Bet you going fishing all of the time. Baby going 
fishing too. Bet your life, your sweet wife will catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, many people came to Florida in the 19th century for health reasons, but also to enjoy the natural environment. Yeah, that's right. We often think of the late 19th century, this mass migration of people coming into Florida during the winter season, these uh, wealthy northern visitors, as coming here for health reasons. Often people were uh, uh, stricken with tuberculosis and diseases that uh, at the time uh, doctors understood if they uh, or felt that if they came to these warmer climates it could improve their health. But there are a lot of people who came to Florida, especially during the late 19th century, uh, specifically seeking uh, large game. Uh, there were uh, very famous hunters who had traveled the world and in Florida at that time was still fairly underdeveloped. And there are a number of uh, areas throughout the state uh, that someone could uh, disappear into the woods and uh, spend a lot of time uh, out on the water uh, fishing for uh, large game. Um, in particular uh, would be the tarpon. Uh, and the tarpon is a species of, of bony fish that's found uh, throughout Florida's coastal waters in uh, both the brackish environment and in the uh, salt water. Uh, and they're particularly uh, targeted because of their sheer size. Uh, now, the tarpon grows to uh, well over 200 pounds and can be as long as, as seven feet long. And they're also very, very difficult to, uh, to hook. So for um, a lot of these game hunters, it, it represented the ultimate prize when you came to Florida. Uh, so a lot of people traveled down to, to the southernmost state and spent uh, thousands of hours in multiple winter seasons um, targeting this particular species. Now you have here two rare books looking at sport fishing in 19th century Florida. Yeah, that's right. And the first book that we're looking at here was originally published in 1896. It's entitled Hunting and Fishing in Florida. And it was published by a gentleman by the name of uh, Charles B. Corey. Uh, and Corey was uh, a native of Boston, Massachusetts. He was a, a trained uh, ornithologist. Florida really kind of held a, a particular place in his heart. He spent uh, close to 10 winter seasons in Florida. Uh, and during that time period, he targeted not only the tarpon and other coastal fish species, uh, but he also traveled throughout the interior uh, and collected uh, hundreds of photographs of his hunts for uh, the Florida black bear, the Florida panther, uh, the white-tailed deer, and a number of other species. Um, and this book, again, is, is fairly unique, uh, not only because of the time period that it was published, um, but Corey's focus is uh, not necessarily just on uh, collecting specimens, these large game specimens, uh, but even here in his introduction, uh, he has a note about, I guess we could call it early conservationist, uh, or he could be considered an early conservationist. The idea was that Corey wanted to target these large species, uh, but also wanted to control the sportsmen's uh, hunting of these species. He didn't want to wipe out, you know, some of these um, uh, wonderful animals that he had really come to uh, 
um, enjoy and, and uh, not again, not just the hunting, but enjoyed really being in the wilderness with. In fact, he mentions following white-tailed deer for uh, miles only to snap a photograph before leaving them alone. But he does uh, mention a few uh, hunts, including the tarpon. Uh, and he's got some wonderful passages. In fact, I'd like to read uh, a little bit of his prose. They're beautifully written. Uh, but he writes here uh, in reference to a tarpon hunt, quote, The stout rod bent like a reed, and our, the carefully tested line sung from the reel in spite of the strong friction from the leather check pressed firmly against it. But the strain was too great to last, and the line ran out slower and slower, and presently the reel ceased to turn. But with a strong, steady pull, the great fish moved steadily on, towing our boat rapidly behind him. And again, this is one of those large species of tarpon. In fact, the one that he lands here weighed almost 150 pounds. It was just over six feet long. And so he was fascinated with um, this particular fish species, but again, also with other uh, large game species. The other book that we're looking at is entitled The English Angler in Florida. And this was published by a gentleman named Roland Ward. Uh, and, and Ward is probably best known as the preeminent taxidermist uh, for the British Empire. Uh, he had a, a large shop in, in London and traveled the world uh, collecting large species of, of wild and, and exotic game. And in fact, during the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, when the uh, British Empire was at its largest point, there were thousands of species coming from all over the world, and they were all stuffed, if you will, at the at the Ward uh, Company store. Uh, but Ward spent a few winters here in Florida, again chasing after that uh, that same tarpon species. What's uh, unique about this particular book is it's a, a basic guide that you'd see in the 19th century, helping people to kind of understand the uh, Florida coastal waters, where to stay, what kind of equipment to use. But he spends a chapter just talking about um, women fishing, which is unique for that time. This is a very male-dominated sport, uh, but he encourages women to travel with their husbands uh, to Florida and uh, try their hand at, at capturing one of these large uh, fish species. And, of course, sport fishing is still very popular in Florida today. Absolutely. You know, Florida has over a 1,000 miles of, of coastline and uh, hundreds and, and thousands, rather, of, of lakes throughout the interior. Uh, and every year we see um, uh, sport fishermen go out uh, trying to bag that, that trophy fish. Uh, but now, as Corey even pointed out at the turn of the century, um, many sportsmen have that uh, conservationist mindset. You know, the idea is to preserve uh, the game so that future generations can also enjoy uh, the sport of, of hunting and fishing in Florida. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Bet you're going fishing all of the time. Baby, going fishing too. Bet your life, your sweet wife's going to catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, mama's going fishing, and the baby going fishing too. This is Florida Frontiers. NASCAR racing is one of the most popular sports in America, and Daytona is a mecca of NASCAR racing. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at early racing in Florida. Obvious time to schedule an event in the south would be in the wintertime when these kind of events were um, were prohibited farther north by the weather. And 
Morgan, this uh, promoter, immediately recognized the potential of a February racing event in Florida. The uh, Henry Flagler, who owned the Ormond Beach ho- the, the hotel at Ormond, was uh, obviously enthusiastic about it, as were the various uh, railroads that he owned. The railroads were able to bring the cars down. The uh, a lot of the wealthy families of, of the Northeast were already wintering in Florida, so they provided an audience uh, support. And the result was a car racing event from 1903 to 1910 at Daytona. That was Randall Hall from Rice University telling me about the early years of auto racing in Florida. Here, he tells me about the people involved. The, the people involved, though, were, were quite eminent uh, in some cases, both on the technological side and on the uh, wealthy sportsman side. There were um, participants in these events between 1903 and 1910, such as uh, Ransom Olds, Lewis Chevrolet, Henry Ford, names that you immediately recognize in the automotive industry, but also um, wealthy men like William Vanderbilt Jr. Uh, of the Vanderbilt family, and a uh, wealthy tobacco and real estate heir named David Bruce Brown. Uh, those men were uh, among you know the, the leading Northeastern uh, elite, and their passion was automobile racing. Dr. Hall explains what led to the first racing events. The um, first racing in the South that I could discover was in 1903 at Daytona Beach. And it was definitely not a working-class origin for the sport. What was going on in Florida at the turn of the century was you know, rapid development of a tourist infrastructure, railroads, hotels, um, taking advantage of the beaches. And in 1903, a New York promoter, a sports promoter named William Morgan, decided to follow up on some uh, tips he had received that a... Um, great spot to stage an auto racing event would be on the beach between Ormond and Daytona. He uh, was able to draw upon the enthusiasm of a, a large number of people who had already become interested in car racing in other parts of the world and in other parts of America. Some of the principal racers at this, this point in time were men from either wealthy families who treated this as, as their sport, their uh, entertainment, or uh, budding industrialists who were using car racing to test the new technologies they were developing for their automobiles. You might wonder what kept drivers and spectators coming year in and year out. Part of that were the records that were kept and could be broken. The pursuit of speed records was not only a national, but it was an international phenomenon at this point. And it was changing quite rapidly because automotive technology was changing quickly. As a result, the the AAA was uh, able to sort of serve as a voice of legitimacy in the timing of, of these these trials. So the um, promoter, William Morgan, would, would coordinate with uh, the, the AAA to, to make this a legitimate event so that the records would apply in, in a worldwide uh, setting. Finally, Dr. Hall leaves us with the global impact of these early racing events. I think of racing at this time as an international technological elite. Some of the people involved in, in constructing cars and, uh, and automotive technology were uh, interacting and, and competing internationally uh, to, to, to create these breakthroughs. So the um, Duroc uh, Auto Company from France, these events as an opportunity to promote their brand and, and were actively involved. Some of the participants themselves were, were part of an international circuit and competing with each other to, uh, to, to create these speed records. So there were uh, people from France, people from England, 
were intimately involved from from the in, in the competitions from the very beginning, and those that same international flavor would reemerge in the 1920s with uh, participants like uh, Malcolm Campbell and Henry Seagrave of of Great Britain coming to Daytona to compete for uh, speed records at that later date. That was Randall Hall. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, The History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.